0: To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The oil-rich states of the Gulf are slowly starting to diversify their economies, in part using sovereign wealth funds. These state-owned investment vehicles usually put their country's cash in safe, stable assets. But in the Gulf, the funds appear to be a bit more adventurous and a bit less transparent. And Heart Island in New York City has become the final resting place for hundreds of thousands of the city's unclaimed dead. It's run by the prison service, so visiting is as hard as getting into Rikers Island, the nearby penitentiary whose inmates bury the forgotten for a dollar an hour. But first, Protesters have stormed and vandalized the legislative building in Hong Kong in a day of demonstrations that has further shaken the city. Yesterday began with a ceremony attended by the government's chief executive, Carrie Lam, to mark the 22nd anniversary of the territory's handover from Britain to China. But on the streets outside, pro-democracy demonstrators, most hiding their faces with masks, were squaring up to police armed with pepper spray and truncheons. By the early evening, the protesters had smashed their way through the glass doors of the Legislative Council, or LEGCO, and into the chamber used by Hong Kong's 70 lawmakers, including Democrats and pro-Beijing members. Some sprayed anti-government graffiti on the walls. Others read out their demands, which included universal suffrage. The chamber was eventually cleared by police in riot gear. This usually peaceful annual rally came on the heels of last month's mass demonstrations against a planned extradition bill. That bill was put on hold by Hong Kong's government, a decision that some foreign media have portrayed as a rare example of a climb down by mainland China. Others know better that the Communist Party will continue to tighten its grip on the city.
2: Well, in the short term, you've obviously had Beijing allowing the Hong Kong government to climb down and to postpone this bill, and it's probably never coming back.
1: David Rennie is our Beijing bureau chief.
2: And, uh, you know, that was read by some outsiders as a massive retreat or a surrender by Beijing. I think it is likely that it was probably a tactical retreat. We've seen this before. This is not the very first time that an unpopular law produced huge protests. We saw this in 2003. We saw it again uh, in 2012, so each time Beijing's plan is basically they, they drop the contentious law, they wait a bit, and then they start to squeeze tightly in a kind of thousand different ways that are often quite hard to see.
1: And what about from the perspective of the protesters who who might think that they, well, they have a great deal of momentum at this stage?
2: Well, they've had tremendous success after a few years where the pro-democracy camp was losing a lot of local elections, losing momentum. These protests, which are kind of leaderless, organic, uh, drew huge numbers of people. And that's been very exciting for the sort of embattled pro-democracy leadership, some of whom went to prison for leading protests in 2013, 2014, including some very young people like Nathan Law, who's only 25. And uh, I spoke to him about this interesting question that when you watch these protests, people are saying how angry they are with the Hong Kong government for not protecting them from the mainland, but very few people actually denouncing the mainland government. Well, um, from now on, all our demands are directed to the Hong Kong government, but um, we all know that the Hong Kong government is like a proxy or public government, that they receive orders from Beijing. And so, um, even though we're not directly saying that our demands are targeting the Beijing government, but in fact, if the Hong Kong government wants to make a concession they have to be they have to get a permission from beijing but the public sentiment or the anger is still there so the 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 protests will
3: continue
1: primarily when when protesters like mr law talk about uh you know angst against the the hong kong leadership it's really against kerry lam the the chief executive what about the rest of the political establishment in hong kong what what do they make of this
2: so basically Hong Kong is run by a sort of strange alliance of very rich tycoons who see an interest in sucking up to the Chinese government and politicians who dominate the local legislature who sort of are either pro-Beijing or pro-establishment. And one of their sort of uh, most prominent figures is a woman called Regina Ip. She used to be the law and order kind of chief for Hong Kong. Uh, she now very much tats the Beijing line that these protests shouldn't be seen as a kind of Anti China mood on the part of Hong Kong public opinion. It's more about uh, sort of a stagnating economy, economic mismanagement, and her solution, which is no surprise, is China's solution, which is to make Hong Kong closer to that uh, dynamic economy in the mainland. But she also uh, repeats the Beijing talking point that maybe unknown foreign forces, which is code for America really, are trying to cause trouble in Hong Kong, including, she says, Trying to maybe repeat the same bloodbath that we saw in 1989, June the fourth, uh, 1989, in Tiananmen Square. My own conspiracy theory is there are people trying to manufacture June fourth crisis in Hong Kong. Who who would be doing that?
4: All the people who want to subvert China. Well, who who are they? I would not want to point fingers.
2: People you know. in Hong Kong or people
4: outside? I Hong would Kong? not want to point fingers.
1: So this seems like uh, irresistible forces and immovable objects. I mean, how do you see this playing out? Are, are these protesters going to succeed in changing the the calculus here?
2: Well, there's no way that these protests are going to make Hong Kong freer or more democratic. They themselves talk about this being defensive. They're trying to preserve what they have. There are elections coming up in November, local elections, which are a kind of last chance uh, for the Democrats to try and do a bit better than they have in recent years. Sadly, I suspect what we will also see is sort of death by a thousand cuts. I think... People expect in Hong Kong that maybe more media outlets to be bought by tycoons loyal to the mainland government. You're going to see more funding for kind of local politicians who, because they've got unlimited cash, they can suddenly start building, you know, community centers and sports pitches. And that makes it look as though it's a waste of a vote to vote for the Democrats. So the the place is going to be squeezed slowly, I think, Uh, but it's not going to get any freer.
1: And and in the meantime, these mostly young protesters, like the ones who occupied the legco yesterday, they're bringing themselves to the attention of authorities.
2: Yeah, and many of them wear masks because they're not keen on being sort of photographed. I spoke to some of those who were taking part in small-scale demonstrations on uh, Monday last week. They were rolling demonstrations at government offices, blocking things like the, the tax headquarters. Maybe because I'm now the parent of teenagers, I found myself kind of coming over all paternal when I met some of these protesters and saying, you know, do you actually think you're in danger? Are your parents uh, worried that you're here? Do they tell you to not come? Of can't? course they do.
3: Of course they do. Actually, they are quite worried about us. Mm-hmm. Worried about me. Yeah. But they understand. They understand the the reason why we're here. Right. But in Hong Kong, it's quite quite right. sad because right. most of the people they think we are making this society worse.
2: What does he mean there,
1: that, that there are people in Hong Kong who think these demonstrations are making matters worse? What does he mean by that?
2: It means that for a lot of Hong Kongers, there's a bargain on offer from Beijing, which is as good as they're going to get, and that is uh, shut up about politics, do what you're told, and we'll help you get prosperous or stay prosperous. And you know, rioting and protesting against the central government puts that bargain in danger.
1: David, thanks very much for joining us.
2: Thank you.
0: Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit eiu.com. What do
1: Uber, a French football team, and the swanky department store Harrods have in common? They're all pumped with golf money. But for decades, it seemed that pumping oil and gas was all the Gulf states had to do. They could build skyscrapers and shopping malls and provide citizens with enough comforts to keep them quiet. But oil is not infinite and demand is far from steady. The countries in the Gulf region need to modernize and diversify their economies. Sovereign wealth funds can help with that, which is why those in the Gulf are becoming ever more adventurous.
4: A well, sovereign wealth fund is a state-run vehicle for investing the surplus revenue, the surplus assets of a state. Greg Karlstrom is one of our Middle East correspondents. So in the case of the Gulf states, it's like a national level version of the retirement funds that many of us have. It's taken surplus oil and gas revenue over the past few decades, and it's invested that money in stocks and bonds and other assets, both at home and abroad, to grow that revenue.
1: Taken together, the world's sovereign wealth funds control $8 trillion in assets, and more than a quarter of that is held by just four countries. Kuwait, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates.
4: The sovereign wealth funds in the Gulf started out as very boring businesses. For a long time, Saudi Arabia's surplus oil revenue was invested by the central bank, the Saudi Arabian Monetary Authority, And it put that money mostly into American treasury bonds, which is a very safe but very low-yield asset. And what we've seen over the past few years, not only in Saudi Arabia but around the Gulf, is they've taken much more aggressive investment strategies. So again, to use Saudi Arabia as an example, the central bank has declined in importance and the public investment fund has become, over the past few years, the main vehicle for investing it's put a lot of that money not into American treasuries, but into American tech companies. Saudi Arabia is now one of the top five investors in Uber, for example, and it's bet big on a number of other potentially very lucrative but also very risky American tech firms. And so
1: why this change in strategy? Why or why are they becoming so aggressive, adventurous?
4: Well, there are two reasons for the shift. One is short-term oil prices have been stubbornly low. Most of the Gulf states set their budgets for 2019 based on a projected oil price between $80 and $100 a barrel. And for most of the year, prices have been below $70 a barrel. So that's understandably left a hole in their budgets, and they need revenue to cover that shortfall. But the longer-term impetus is all of the Gulf states, to greater or lesser extent, have realized that oil and gas revenue will not be around forever, that the public sector can't generate enough jobs for their growing and young populations, and so they need money to drive economic transformation and modernization at home. And so
1: are all of these Gulf countries taking the same kind of strategy?
4: They've taken very different strategies, actually, to use Saudi Arabia and Qatar as two examples. The Saudis, again, have put a lot of money into tech. They have their investments in Uber. They're investors in both Tesla and Lucid Motors, which is a competitor in the electric car space. They have a $45 billion tie-up with SoftBank, a Japanese conglomerate that's investing in tech companies around the world. All of these could be quite lucrative if the firms they're investing in find a way to turn a profit. But of course, one of the hallmarks of many of the tech IPOs in recent years is that these companies are not yet profitable and don't yet have a path to profitability. So these are also quite risky investments for Saudi Arabia. Qatar, as a counterpoint, doesn't have a short-term need to earn returns from its sovereign wealth fund. It has only about 300,000 citizens. It has the third largest proven gas reserves in the world. It has really more money than it knows what to do with. So it uses its sovereign wealth almost as an adjunct to diplomacy. You look at its early investments, and they were vanity projects almost. Qatar owns a lot of real estate in London, including the Harrods department store, They own through a subsidiary of the Sovereign Wealth Fund, the football club in Paris. But you look at what they've done over the past couple of years, and they've invested billions of dollars in Rosneft, the Russian energy giant. Of course, Russia has become an increasingly big player in the Middle East after its intervention in Syria a few years ago. There's talk of big investments in Turkey, haven't yet materialized, but there's talk of big investment there. Turkey is an important security partner for the Qataris. It has a garrison of a few hundred troops deployed in Doha. And so Qatar, particularly since the blockade two years ago, since its Gulf neighbors imposed an embargo on it, it started using its sovereign wealth as a way of cementing geopolitical alliances. And that kind of
1: politically minded use of these funds is not how the rest of the world's sovereign wealth funds
4: work. It's certainly not how the world's largest sovereign wealth fund would work. Norway has been setting aside uh, almost a trillion dollars of oil revenue over the past few decades. And it has been accused over the years of being too conservative of an investor. There have been times where Norway's fund has lagged behind the S&P 500 in its annual returns. But the reason for that caution is because parliament dictates how that fund can invest. It controls how much risk it can take on. It sets ethical standards for investments. And so we've seen over the past couple of years, Norway's fund has begun moving away from, say, oil and gas stocks and putting money into renewable energy. And that took years of public debate in parliament before that sort of a shift was approved. You contrast that with the Gulf, where their funds are operated by very small circles of officials who are Close to the ruling families, without anything in the way of public debate, the Qatar Investment Authority, both its chairman and its deputy chairman, are relatives of the emir. So no one is going to question the decisions that are made there. Saudi Arabia, the public investment fund, is almost a pet project of the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. And so what the crown prince wants, the crown prince gets. And so you end up with all of these
1: sort of pet projects and vanity projects and the like. But in some sense, it's kind of unsurprising that there isn't this public discussion and voting and what have you. This is a region known for not having a great deal of democratic debate anyway.
4: That's right. It's a region where, yes, it's undergoing transformation in many ways. Gulf states are encouraging entrepreneurship and putting money into small and medium enterprises. But the fundamentally patriarchal model of governance, whereby a small circle of leaders make the decisions and the citizens are simply expected to trust that and then reap the benefits of those decisions, that has yet to change in the Gulf. Citizens are being told, trust us. We know what we're doing. We know where we're investing this money. And in the long run, even when the oil and gas runs out, the sovereign wealth funds will be there to provide for you. But many of these investments are a risk. They're investing in companies that may not achieve profitability. They're investing in prestigious assets that may not deliver returns. And so there's the risk for many of the Gulf states that these promises will ring hollow. And in the long run, their sovereign wealth funds will not be able to provide the future that they're meant to. Greg, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you.
1: In New York City, just east of the Bronx, is Heart Island. It's been home to all kinds of things that the city might need, but doesn't want to see. A Civil War prison camp, a psychiatric asylum, a drug rehab. But now, it's just where New York City buries the poor or unclaimed.
3: You have a sense of a, of a part of New York that just hasn't been developed.
1: Melinda Hunt works with families who have relatives buried on the island.
3: When I first went there, I was expecting it to be a very dark place. And when I got there, it didn't feel that way to me. It felt sort of like this big open-air cathedral. There are no markers or anything, but there's an awareness that the whole island is covered with graves. So everywhere you walk is someone's relative.
1: She's the founding director of the Heart Island Project. Its aim is first to help locate the dead whose details have been lost, and to help families tell their stories.
3: The sadness is really a window into the stories, into into the many ways that people can disappear in New York City. And as an immigrant myself, it's, It's not that hard to get swallowed up by this large city.
1: Rosemary Ward is The Economist's New York correspondent. She's been looking into the future of Hart Island.
3: States all over America are trying to figure out what to do with not just their unclaimed dead, but their poor. Many jurisdictions are dealing with a backlog in unclaimed dead because of the opioid crisis. In West Virginia, for instance, the state fund designed to help pay for the poor ran out of money last year. In North Carolina, the unclaimed bodies are cremated, stored for three years before being scattered at sea. And because of the high number of migrant deaths in Pima County in Arizona, its medical examiner's office handles more identified remains per capita than any other medical examiner's office in America.
1: So what about New York? How do how do people end up on Hart Island?
3: What happens in New York is a Dickensian end for many who are poor and unclaimed and not much has changed since the 1860s. The poor are buried in pine coffins usually marked with numbers and rarely names. They're stacked 3 deep in a trench that's not more than 3 feet below the surface. Each trench holds 150 adult coffins and roughly 1200 people are buried there every year. It's maintained by inmates from Rikers Island, the city's biggest jail, who are paid a dollar an hour to look after the poor.
1: And it being New York, that that must be quite a diverse population of of unclaimed dead.
3: Indeed. Uh, There's about one million people buried there, and they come from all over the five boroughs. The first victims of AIDS are actually buried on the island. The funeral homes rejected, their remains... So, the city had no choice but to bury them on Hard Island, and they buried them far away from the other graves as if the dead could catch a disease. It may be the largest cemetery for victims of the AIDS epidemic
1: and and for that reason and others, you, you can imagine that people would that it might end up as a, a site of pilgrimage. I mean, what, what's it like to be there
3: um, well it's actually very hard to get on the island, even families who have people buried on the island have to endure a very arduous process to visit. They have to sign up well in advance, and they have to adhere to rigid security rules similar to those for jail visitors, because the island is maintained by inmates from Rikers, the city's biggest jail. So it's not a pleasant process if you can get onto the island at all.
1: And so what's the the future looking like for the island?
3: Well, right now, the city council speaker, Corey Johnson, is backing a package of bills that would transfer operations to the Parks Department. That would make it much easier to visit. The Parks Department already maintains some other historical cemeteries, so they have the experience to maintain a cemetery. Rikers Island supposedly may be closing, so there wouldn't be the access to the prison labor. And also, according to the Department of Corrections, the cemetery's filling up. There's only room for about eight or 10 more years. Then that raises another question. Where will the poor be buried in New York?
0: To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit eiu.com.